Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown, joined in the ATP virtual studio. For part two, Charles Reed Anderson from Charles Reed Anderson Associates. Charles, welcome back. Hi, Graham. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Now, we've got so much to catch up on. Obviously, it's been a while since you were on Asia Tech Podcast. Seven or eight months, I think, that you were last Yeah, lots, lots happened since then. It has. Well, I mean, a lot's happened with you and your business. We'll talk about that, you know, what's sort of been working for you in the last sort of seven or eight months. But also IoT, you are the IoT man when it comes to Asia. So let's start there. We have to. What's exciting at the moment? What gets you really jizzed up about IoT in Asia? What do we need to know? Well, there's been a few things recently that are quite excited me, but uh, the one that really got me more than anything was in a recent initiative from Omate, which is out of uh, Shenzhen. And they always make really interesting devices, like smartwatches. But what they do is they don't make a smartwatch for everyone. They tend to make it for a specific market niche. Mm. So what they had was an elderly care management watch, which I think we might have talked about last time. What they've done now is they've launched a children's watch and uh, they partnered with Nanoblocks out of Japan. So you basically have a Lego version of a children's smartwatch, mm-hmm. which sounds cool, but it's not, you know, it's just it's, it's still another smartwatch. Why I'm excited about it is, is they partnered with Tata Communications and they've launched it with an eSIM. Now, this for me is exciting and I'm really struggling because I think the rest of the industry doesn't grasp onto this yet. By launching this with an eSIM and then through someone like Tata Comms, Tata has relationships with 600 operators worldwide. This means that a relatively small hardware manufacturer out of Shenzhen can now launch global with connected uh, connectivity in any country it wants to, or at least anywhere that of those 600 operators that Tata has a relationship with. And it sort of fundamentally changes the game. They can come in at a low price point, but it really streamlines their go-to-market. And it means they don't have to worry about things like trying to negotiate in every single country with all these different operators. Mm. So for me, that's the one when I read it, I just thought this could really be a game changer. Absolutely. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show. Let's unpack that a little bit, Charles, and you're obviously the man to help us do that. Uh, Okay, Omate, they're the, the watch company, the, I mean, Laurel Le Pen, who runs that out of Shenzhen, as you say. I mean, he, I think he was, I mean, they've been around for a few years. I, remember, I interviewed him, oh, I don't know, four years ago, maybe. But they were like one of the first uh, $1 million Kickstarter programs. So, you know, they were using Kickstarter back in the day. So that's yeah. Omate. Tata, Indian services company. I mean, you know, they, they're in everything. They're one of the sort of one of those conglomerates that has a bit of everything, right? A bit like the old sort of Japanese conglomerates like Mitsubishi and so on, heavy industries, they seem to have connections everywhere in the world, right? And then eSIMs as well. I mean, what exactly is an e? I mean, we're familiar with SIM cards. What's an eSIM? So an eSIM basically means that you're going to have a SIM sitting inside the device, an embedded SIM sitting in there. It, it, think of it as almost like a virtual type SIM. Right. The idea is that it doesn't come preloaded, so it's not going to have a specific operator loaded onto it. So it's not going to say Singtel or SoftBank or whatever it might be or AT&T in the U.S. Mm. Um, it can basically turn on in a country and then connect to a network there. So there's a couple of different models around this. What you're getting right now is Microsoft is pushing an initiative around this for some of the Surface laptops and, and other types of uh, Windows 10 laptops mm. where they're launching embedded SIMs. But then you're reliant. I think right now they have 10 operators worldwide. 
that will let you just turn it on and connect to their network. But that's 10 operators. Someone like Tata uh, for Tata Communications, they have 600 operators, which means you can turn on in pretty much any country in the world. Hmm. So it really does become you know, quite a disruptive type model. Um, it's early days to see how it's actually going to play out, but it is getting quite um, hectic in the space. So there was a bunch of reports this weekend, including in the Wall Street Journal, um, about how, um, I don't know if it was the Justice Department, someone's investigating what's going on in the U.S. around eSIMs. And they were looking at potential collusion uh, between some of the operators in the U.S. to try and sort of fix this market. Because mm. um, what it does, it really does open it up for a disruptive business model. Mm. Let, let's look at that. Obviously, this is a threat to some extent with existing operators, right? So do they, I mean, if, you, if I was to put an eSIM into a gadget, like you say, go through a Tata MVNO, what, what sort of coverage would that give me? What kind of... I'm just curious about the practicalities as a user. You know, how would that stack up? Because I know that, I mean, if I have a normal SIM card with Singtel, for example, I can pretty much go anywhere in the world. They may have some agreements on roaming, but it's not very extensive. I mean, data, I think, probably up to a certain point. What's it like if I was to pack in an eSIM on a Tata network? Um, if you're doing something like this, the Omate Watch, it just means basically you can launch it in any country. I mean, let's face it, if he's got 600 operators, I think, don't quote me on this one, but I think it's around 900 mobile operators worldwide. So they basically have relationships with about two-thirds of them. Yeah. So um, it, it's a pretty exciting concept. Um, mm. The operators are a bit scared by this because they're worried that they could lose control over it. And in, let's face it, you know, owning the customer directly is lucrative for them. Yeah. Um, but someone like Tata, because they're buying in bulk, they can offer someone like Omate much better pricing uh, than you would ever get from just going direct to an operator, especially with the volumes that mm. someone like Omate is talking about. Yeah, this is really interesting. My background is telecoms, mobile telecoms. So, you know, obviously for years and years, really until Apple came along and started trying to break it up a little bit, the whole industry was run by the mobile operators who would, you know, be the mobile operators that bought the handsets. And then, yep. you know, distributed them through, maybe through independent retailer, maybe through their own stores. But that, that model pretty much stay, you know, that sticks around today. That's pretty the main model, isn't it? The operator would buy a hundred thousand yep. handsets from, you know, it could be back in the day, a Nokia or a Motorola or an Ericsson. But I don't think anything's mm -hmm. changed a lot. So they, they have a grip. And as you say, owning the customer is their main driver. What does this mean then? I mean, if, if this looks and works like it, 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 it apparently it looks like quite a game changer. What would that mean for telecoms long term? What do you think that would have an impact? Who, who would feel it first? Well, I, I think the smart operators are going to look at this as a way where they can drive a new revenue stream. So they're going to try and create models to engage new customers, um, especially you know for the laptop side, if they're all going to come with uh, eSIMs now. Um, but what it could mean is you might see some of the handset manufacturers um, bypassing. If they have a strong brand, they can almost bypass mobile operators. And the one I keep going back to, I mean, I know Google has its own connectivity product already with uh, Patrick Fee or Fi, whatever you, however you pronounce it. Um, but imagine somebody like Google or somebody like Amazon who have strong global brands. They could literally take something like this and launch a product globally without having to work with the mobile operators. Now, I don't know if they would do that. Um, but let's face it, I mean, we, we, it's hard to sit there and say what somebody like an Amazon would or would not invest in. I mean, now they're already in insurance, um, they're buying up everything. So um, I could see companies like that trying to create a disruptive model around it. Mm -hmm. And that's just looking at the more traditional ICT vendors. 
What you could also see is just other large brands trying to leverage this type of a model. And it doesn't mean they have to go to someone like Tata. It could be something else. But, I mean, these eSIM things, can't. it just means that we're, we're sort of breaking the handcuffs. We're not going to be tied to that single operator anymore. And it's going to pull away some of the, the strength that those operators have because now there's going to be alternative models to go to market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, before we sort of look a bit more at that, and especially those you know, you mentioned like the Googles and the Amazons, what the implications are for them and a whole bunch of other companies that may follow in their wake as well in this market. Just going back to it, so people understand the eSIM itself, what fundamentally does it do different? I mean, that's such that you can have this setup that a normal SIM can't do. Well, basically, it gives you the flexibility to just connect to any network as that network. Right. Um, so it's not locked in as the Singtel SIM. So it's basically um, an MVNO type model, so a mobile virtual network operator. Right. Um, and on that model, then they can just connect in any country with it. So, um, but because they have the local relationships, they can really control that price point um, and make it attractive. So when you when they ship the SIMs, are they tied to an MVNO, or are they? And are they network free completely? Okay, now there's some. There's two different models on this. Uh, I think I and don't. I'm not 100 percent sure, but I'm guessing what Omit would have done with Tata um, is that they would have actually put in the Tata embedded SIM uh, in the yeah. device, then launched so it'll connect in their network. What is happening now is that there's a handful of opera or a handful of uh, laptop manufacturers. I know Acer launched one at CES this year, and there's been a few other ones launched as well that are coming with an eSIM inside of it. So it comes as part of the chip. Now, one of the, I think it's one of the Intel chips mm. uh, that are inside the laptops come with an eSIM, which means you basically have an embedded SIM in that device already. Now you can actually connect via the laptop to a mobile operator and then basically instead of having to go to a shop and have to deal with a, a very long queue and trying to like, you know, set up for a contract, it should be much more automated and streamlined which for us as users and consumers is a much better experience. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you go back to, as an example, the iPad, you know, that ships with a SIM card, you know, that yeah. that should be a really relatively easy deal, doesn't it, for, for consumers yeah. that, okay, I pay a little bit extra, but it isn't, you know, because you're tied right. to a, a network. And a lot of people take iPads like on vacation, you know, they travel with them, you know, they're handy to sort of take around with you and, that throws up all kinds of problems, doesn't it? So that would be an interest. I mean, already you've got off the bat an area where that could apply, right? So maybe we can have a look at some of the the areas you think this is going to have an impact on. You mentioned Google, you mentioned Amazon. Where do you think these are going to have the impact? What sort of devices do you think eSIMs will have the first sort of injuries? Oh, I think one of the most basic things about what I really like about it is it actually gives some better opportunities to a lot of the startups that have really good ideas. Um, so someone like you know, Lauren over at um, Omate, he made some great devices. He was able to experiment. But the thing is, in that process of taking it to market, he always has to go and then deal with an operator in every country. And I'm, I'm also um, an ex-telecoms guy, so I've worked for a couple of the bigger mobile operators in the world. So I know how difficult they can be to deal with at times. Um, this opens it up to him, and he can now go to market in pretty much any country he wants. Um, and the other nice thing about this is because it's on the Tata network, the full thing's secured. So and we didn't cover this earlier, but one of the issues you've had in Europe around children's watches yeah. is the European Commission has really come down hard on them. And in Germany, uh, one of the watchdogs there basically recommended destroying children's watches 
because they could be hacked and people could use them to track children. Wow. Um, but because of the way that the Tatsa's platform is set up, it basically is end-to-end security and encryption. So um, it actually gets around all these challenges about tracking the device. So I think what it does, it could actually help a lot of the startups that you're going to see in places like Shenzhen. And I think they'll experiment with it more upfront than maybe you know some of the larger U.S. brands on this stuff. Um, just because they're looking at innovative ways to try and go to market and reach a new customer base. Yeah, that is really interesting, isn't it? When you talk about those thousands of of you know startups based out of Shenzhen, you know the these sort of quite below the radar start hardware startups. You know now they have options. You mentioned, for example, you know you've worked in telecoms you know what it's like you know i don't think people yeah. can appreciate what it's like to try and do a deal with a mobile operator certainly out of the reach of those startups right because they a they won't deal with you because of the volume you're just a waste of yeah. their time and b you now have to know exactly who does you know who's the guy that deals with widgets in this company right and you know yeah. these operators are massive thousands and thousands of people if you don't find the right guy you, you know you're lost so the resources required for a hardware startup are huge, and it's it's distraction, isn't it? It's time. It takes a long time to get through to the right guy at the mobile operator. So this is really interesting. So if you go back to those small startups, I mean, let's just sort of just think this through. If you're a small startup in Shenzhen, what sort of where do you think this would work? I mean, without sort of naming a specific, but you know, there's medical devices, there's drones, there's IoT startups of all different shapes and sizes. Let's sort of think this through. Where, where do you think it would work? Who do you think would have the most benefit out of something like this? Um, I, I, funny enough, when I first read the article about um, this launch, I didn't catch on to the whole security angle. But now that I caught on to that, it did get me start thinking about things around elderly care management or medical type devices. Yeah. Um, so that, I think, is the really interesting niche because it's not just about the connectivity. It's about secure connectivity as well. Um, so, I mean, I'm a big fan of things for, um, wearables going down to single purpose type devices. So I want to mm -hmm. see things that will help either monitor, um, fitness or help people monitor, um, chronic illnesses or do things for elderly care as well. Since, you know, as we all get older, I want to make sure we have the technology in place. Mm -hmm. So I live comfortably when I'm that age, but I think that's an area because it's ticking off two boxes. It's that connectivity and the security. I think they would be an, um, an area that would really look at it initially. What's that market like at the moment when you talk about wearables and medical devices, elderly? Obviously, I can imagine Singapore is quite a good market for that, isn't it? It's got an aging population. It's wealthy. It's got an extremely high level of healthcare as well. Um, China's obviously catching up. Again, there's a lot of focus now on, on quantified self and all those kind of like IoT devices that measure your your basic, what are they called? Your basic sort of bodily KPI, you know, whether it's your sugar yeah. levels or whatever, your heart rate. What's the, what's the market like for IoT in that, just so we can get a spread of it? What, what, I mean, I wouldn't know where to start. when you, I mean, I know as a user, for example, like sports watches, um, I know yeah. they're sort of like, you know, IoT devices for diabetics. Yep. How big is that market and what sort of the main applications of it at the moment? It's, it's still relatively early days. There's a lot of people making the hardware, uh, but the challenge is that's just the one device. They need a platform, you need the security on top of it. 
and then you need to or somehow link that into an existing process. Mm. Um, so, you know, if you're managing somebody who is a diabetic patient, how many hospitals right now are going to be set up to actually leverage the data that comes out of that device? Mm. Um, so it's, it's a big, there's a lot more structural and organizational design that's required to make these things work. Um, the other challenge we face is, you know, it's just these things are expensive still. And yes, while, you know, Singapore has a relatively high uh, income level, when you talk to governments anywhere around the region or you talk to insurance companies or healthcare institutions and you say, this is great, you should give this out to a thousand patients and you tell them it's $300 a device yeah. plus a service fee, that CapEx really holds back the investment. So that's another thing that OMAID had done recently is they started launching their wearables as a service. And I think that's what needs to happen for the market to take off. Um, the cities all know they're facing a crisis. I mean, Japan's has probably the, the most severe uh, aging population crisis Absolutely. we're going to see because by 2025, you're going to have 5% of the population will have dementia. And then by the time you get to 2050, it's going to be 10% of the population. So um, they should be at the forefront of leveraging technology and experimenting with it to see how it can actually improve elderly care management. Mm. Um, Singapore is doing a lot of testing as well. There was a pretty cool initiative that was launched with Nokia um, in one of the elderly care homes here. And they're using visual analytics to monitor patients, like I said, called gait, like the way they walk. Right. And they'll be able to tell when someone's going to fall. And now in theory, this isn't like two seconds before you know their fall and you can't do anything about it. You'll actually know that somebody's starting to walk differently before they fall. You'll have time to get to them and you know try and assess what's wrong. Mm. So those types of things get interesting as well. And that means no wearable. And this is the other thing. Elderly patients don't like the idea of a big funky watch on their wrist that's got a lot of different buttons on it. Right, absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be discreet, hasn't it? This is the key. Yes. You've got this really interesting area. You've got this overlap, haven't you, with IoT. You have, like you mentioned, eSIMS as well, which maybe expands the reach of the, the capacity of these devices as well. And then you have this sort of, you know, t to some extent you have big data, so you're able to track and also compare patterns like you're talking about somebody's gait, where they're going to fall. You, you must have a, like a big repository of data to be able to compare you know, behavior against, yeah. right? And then you also have maybe artificial intelligence to make a sense of all of that as well. Yes. So you have this kind of overlap, you know, where, where all this is sort of coming together. I think it's a really fascinating area. And I just wonder. It's getting what, more fascinating, yeah. Yeah, what, what the kind of applications that are going to really, you know, because there's also danger, isn't there, Charles, that it gets a bit Star Trek. Like, okay, we can yeah. throw an eSIM into this thing, therefore, let's do it. You know, we, maybe it doesn't need it. But the, then there are also things where you say, actually, this is like a really tangible application of something that could be good. You know, I'm just wondering where yeah. you see it sort of poking through first. Where are the areas that interest you where you see sort of the progress that maybe you know maybe the mass market aren't really sort of seeing it yet because it hasn't come through I, I think there's been a couple of interesting things in the last five years in the space that i've been sort of tracking one of them didn't really amount to much and that's what samsung was doing with its sim band so this was a pure rnd type device it had 20 different medical sensors in it and i think they only made a couple hundred of them but they were working with imec which is like a global scientific yeah. group and they were just testing out different models. Now, what eventually would happen is those 20 sensors would go down to single purpose devices. That really didn't evolve. But now what's happening more recently is um, like Fitbit um, isn't just doing sport watches. What they're doing is hiring in people who understand the medical industry. So people who come from that field 
and they're trying to build out a whole healthcare business. Mm. Because Fitbit, while everyone thinks it's about smartwatches, it's really about data. And one of the most valuable parts of that data is how you can apply it to healthcare. So they're bringing in people who are from outside the industry to help advise them on that. So I find that model pretty interesting as well to see yeah. how that will evolve. Yeah, I mean, this is it's really exciting, isn't it? I mean, a lot of what that you know, a lot of the problems that we have. I mean, if you go back to healthcare as example, you know, it's very expensive and it affects everybody. Ultimately, we're all going to die at some point. Nobody has yet found a cure for that. But ultimately, I think you know. The, the the problem which is emerging now is these degenerative diseases as well, and you yeah. know that that is just a growing market. But you know it seems that the challenge is, is that the, the solutions are out there. We just have to access a lot of data, and we have to kind of join the dots here. I mean, I yeah. see, like you say, I mean, it, hear these sort of examples bit by bit on day by day. You hear sort of things these emerging, but nothing sort of concrete at this stage where you say okay this is something which is solving this problem like nobody has yet said okay right we found a cure for cancer we found a cure for diabetes right i wonder if that's ever going to happen or, or maybe sort of you know when you look at the space that you're monitoring like iot it really is just sort of chipping away at the edges gradually maybe we'll get there in the end but it's sort of really dealing a lot with the symptomatic stuff the behavioral stuff but I, I think it's it's still really early days because you gotta remember a lot of these things we need multiple data sources. So it's not just one data source. You know, you start you need to combine a bunch of these different ones together, but it's gotta be a hundred percent accurate. We can't afford to have bad data or bad reading of data mm. or inaccurate reading of data because that could be very disruptive to people's lives. Or it could be deadly if you don't capture something that is changing and the device doesn't capture it appropriately. Mm. But I think what you'll see is, you know, these things around epigenetics and the way that this is moving. Um, you've got your companies like 23andMe that can tell Absolutely. you what your nationality are. That stuff's not great on the medical side. But where it's moving to now is you're seeing people who can actually start, you know, there's some of the stuff coming out of Oxford uh, Biodynamics. They can actually identify, it's not just like if you have the same gene, it's not, you know, that somebody, you know, that means you might have some particular form of cancer. They can tell whether certain was it, genomes whatever, are turned on or off and whether that means, you know, so you can actually address it. Um, and it doesn't mean you're 100% you're going to get it. And I'm, that probably didn't explain that very well, but it's a very complicated topic mm -hmm. and I'm not the expert. But what's fascinating about it is, is we're learning um, how to use the data. Um, we, ha we have the basics right now, but if you start combining these different data sources, we can make a very comprehensive um, view of a patient and hopefully extend their life and make it more manageable. But these things are gonna take quite um, some time to do. It's not that easy. Yeah, We need a lot more data. I mean, we're capturing a ton of data, but we need a lot more of it still. Absolutely. Uh I don't think people realize how much data there is to capture just in a single human being. I mean, I, mm. I've seen there's been a lot of advancement in recent years about biome testing, which is, you know, mm. everybody's aware of like genomes, you, know, you can sequence genomes and you can get an idea, like you say, 23andMe, you can get an idea of, you know, your, your genetic makeup and where that may mean that you came from in the world as well. But there's also been like a real advancement in testing your bacteria right inside the body. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know the numbers, but you know we're talking billions and billions like, in just one yeah. human being. So y you wonder, like, just how much capacity for data we really have? Because, like, if you just take one person, we're not talking like you know Singapore, where it's five million people, etc. You know, there's a heck of a lot of data that we're building up about people. Yes, and it's gonna we'll be capturing more and more of that data, and then of course there's gonna be the 
personal aspect of it. Like, how much data are we willing to let everybody analyze on us? Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, I'm very open. I'm happy to you know analyze any data you can get on me, and then tell me if what what how I can improve my life or how I can make sure I live longer. Um, but a lot of people won't want that. They're very private about the data. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. I mean, obviously, you have established yourself as an IoT expert, and you know you're an established name and authority in Asia. People know who you are. People have heard of you. you know, people have seen your the infographics that you share. So you know, like openly on on LinkedIn and on the internet and so on. How about your own sort of life in terms of your data? Do you are you sort of wired up? Are you or you know? Do you have gadgets? Do you use Fitbit? Do you? I mean, what about you as yourself in terms of an IoT user? It's funny that you mention it. I actually just purchased my first smartwatch, but I wouldn't even consider it a smartwatch. It's more <laughs> for hiking and sport. So um, right. I went with a Garmin. Uh, I'm not a fan of the one size fits all smartwatches. Um, I think they're they. For me, it doesn't solve a problem. Whereas I wanted accuracy for hiking and traveling around, so that's why I went with the Garmin. Um, but I've tried a lot of different ones. So I mean, I've, I've got I've got a drawer full of things that I've used twice and never used again. Right. Um, I've got a couple of Google Homes sitting around my house, which still randomly speak to me at times, which scares me a bit. Um, the best thing I've ever got, the best device I've ever, probably my favorite IoT device of all time, is the Muse headband. Um, have you heard of this one before? Right. Which one's is it? it, it no, okay, go it on. It measures your brain waves. Yeah, it measures the brainwave sensors. So there's seven sensors on there that can measure your brain waves. And I've been tracking this one for about five years now. And the first time I heard about it, they were running a hackathon with what can you do with it. Right. And somebody actually won the hackathon because they could use this to control a tap and pour themselves a beer. Right. I heard about this. So, yeah. Yeah. And um, but then when they ended up doing their commercial launch, they launched it as a meditation tool. Um, and basically, it's guided meditation. And I've always thought I should learn how to meditate, and I'm horrible at it. Yeah. Um, but this guided meditation stuff is amazing the way it works. Um, and even someone like me can do it. And I think it is still the coolest device um, I've ever gotten in this space, or one I've ever one, best one I've seen in this space. The only problem is me, because I am horrible when it comes to doing it. So right. I never do it as often as I should. Right. So, but well, that, that's that, a I good mean, user case study, isn't it? If ever, if ever you wanted one, is that you know pick the most difficult of users to see if this thing actually works. But it actually picks up on your brain waves, or I guess radio frequencies from the brain wave, right? And yeah. from that you can, I don't know the details of that hackathon, but I was aware of it when it actually happens, is that, you know, by limiting certain thoughts, certain feelings can admit certain kind of frequencies which can be picked up by the, the headband, right? Which, you know, I'm not sure the specifics of it, but you can, in theory, train a certain thought to do a certain thing, right? Yes. I don't think it'd be a specific, like, for example, you know, I'm going to have Pilsner as opposed to, you know, maybe Lohenbrau in terms of your choice yeah. of beer, right? But it's just like, you know, if you think like this, it's going to be a, a binary switch, isn't it? That's going to be fired off by this thing. But, I don't know. I think it'll take them a while before they can actually get to that level of selecting which type of beer. Right. Uh, I'd be happy if we could just do one beer, but um, exactly. it's a step in the right direction. I mean, that's fast. So you would use that to train yourself to meditate because I guess you're trying to train your, your brain waves to get to a certain frequency to a certain rhythm you use your your Garmin watch for hiking yeah. and sports By the way, I've got what, another one I use for that I can wear on my shirt while I'm working at my desk and it sort of vibrates if I'm not if I start slouching right. um, but that one's been collecting dust for a long time I'm actually looking at it right now wondering when the last time I put it on right. um, 
what I was that? Up, like um, an accelerometer in that? Or? No, it's just a small little clip that sits on there. I can't even remember the name of it. Let me pull this out here. It's uh, behind the computer here. Right. That's the and um, it's actually, it looks pretty nice, um, and it works well. Um, but I just, the problem is, like, sometimes the Bluetooth uh, interacts with it. If I'm wearing a Bluetooth headset, it sometimes doesn't work or it vibrates too much, and I just get annoyed with it. So. Is that but, uh, your posture? Sorry? Does that measure your posture? Does it know that when you yes. see yourself? Okay. Yeah. yeah, so when you start slouching, which you do if you spend 12 hours at the desk all day, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the kind of thing you want to put on a taxi driver so they don't fall asleep when they're, you know, like, yes, driving. Definitely. Right? I mean, I was, the other day I was... I mean, talking about going to Shenzhen, I was in... I was in uh, where was it? I think it was Shanghai. And the, the taxi driver was falling asleep whilst he was driving me. Every time I was like, but you know, like, in the taxi taxis in China, they have the plastic guard in between you and the driver. It's like, banging, yep. wake up! Oh, he'd wake up and then he'd sort of center himself back in the motorway. But there you go. That's the kind of thing you want. I mean, it has a, a real application, right? I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, I, I use these apps myself. I mean, I use these devices myself. I use. I have a Garmin myself, a Garmin HR, mm. which I use. Um, but you know, a lot of these things have a lot of functionality, and you only get sort of use the sort of core two or three different things. I use mine for triathlon, so mm. you know, I'd use it for measuring run and so on. But it has all kinds of different stuff on it which you don't use. So it's almost like, you know, it's like going back to the eSIM thing. It's like, you know, it's just trying to get, you mentioned it, like the, the core one function that this thing does yeah. really well. It's always a challenge, isn't it, when you design, design these devices, like you say, like the multi-watch. It could do like 100 different things, but it probably ends up doing 100 things averagely well. Yeah. You, you and know? that's why I want something, you know, like when you get into the medical grade devices, it's got to do one thing very well, very accurately. Yeah. Um, but it should just do that, you know, and that's what we really need to get to. Because if you want to start monitoring, especially chronic illness, it just, it has to be right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, fascinating. When you look at what's going on in Asia today, obviously you're based in Singapore. You know, yep. That's a, a very advanced market, but it's a small market. You know, when you look around Asia, which, which sort of countries are interesting for, I mean, we sort of pitched this to people looking from the outside into Asia and you know what's going on in IoT and hardware you mentioned Shenzhen already I'm sure some people may be familiar with Shenzhen what's going on what, what sort of you know the sort of general top level trends that you can talk about in terms of IoT are the sort of particular pockets of innovation around Asia which are interesting uh, well do you want to go on the smart city angle because yeah, I got talk. a great example there absolutely so like to. So I'm always fascinated by smart cities because we, we build up all this hype, um, but we have the same issues we've always had. Like no one's writing blank checks to pay for these things. Uh, so no one has money for it. No one's got the resources and we just don't know what we're going to do with it. And smart cities are really stuck in almost like the infrastructure centric mode. They're doing the basic solutions that deliver cost savings. So they're doing predictive maintenance on equipment or tracking of assets. Um, so it's, it's still very early days. Very few cities have gone from infrastructure centric to citizen centric. Mm. And this is important because they've built up all this hype. But let's face it, as citizens, where do you walk around and really see a smart city? Um, I don't think there's really that many in the world. Mm. Um, so, you know, what happened is I was up in Taipei recently and I got a briefing from the government there on what they're doing. And they're the ones that I think have cracked it better than anyone else as far as creating a model. Um, to create a citizen-centric smart city. And I was fascinated by it. And actually, I wrote a blog about it recently 
And the funny thing is, what they did is really common sense. They did what you just should do, but it's the things that people just don't do. And what they did is they basically created a smart city PMO, um, which was supposed to basically just help out the ecosystem. So what normally happens in the cities around the region is the PMO, or the project management office, acts as the blocker and gatekeeper to get to the government. Yeah. What they did is they basically shifted this out and said, all right, you have three functions. Um, you have to go out there and engage the citizens to understand what they're looking for. Um, you have to engage the government. So you go and work with the top government organizations to help drive the major initiatives going forward. And then what you have to do is engage the ICT community. Um, so your technology vendors and startups, because they're the ones who are going to do this bottom up and come up with the solutions for you. And by doing this, they've actually started delivering a lot of great solutions. Mm. And just in the last, whatever, maybe like six, nine, 12 months since they've launched this, they've already launched 130 proof of concepts and pilots around the wow. city. And these are the ICT community working with them. And they were very smart about it. Not only have they changed the, ro the role of the project management office from being sort of a gatekeeper to being the enabler, um, but what they basically said to them is, listen, we don't have cash to pay for these. What we do have is assets and infrastructure. So if you come up with a concept that you want to test out, we'll let you use our infrastructure and our assets and you can launch it there and then we'll let you launch a smart city project for us. Mm. So what they've been able to do is and it's, it's not just startups. I mean, they've got some of the bigger vendors in there. I mean, I know like uh, Cisco's involved in this and some of the other larger ones. Um, I'll be able to create the platform. They've got the connectivity providers like Unibiz up in Taipei um, is giving, 10, I think, 10,000 free connections so people can test out um, solutions on the Sigfox network. And they're really just, they've, they've almost just created a community up there. And mm. it's fascinating because I don't know why more people don't do it. They've basically said is we want to make everyone's job easier. We have one team that's supposed to basically help everybody out. Right. And it's I'm really happy for them because... They've cracked it. They're testing out all these citizen-centric services. Mm. And to be perfectly honest with you, I'm sure 75% of them will fail. But that means that 25% are successful. And that's great because then the rest of the region can look to those solutions and say, well, this is what maybe we should start launching next. Because yeah. someone's got to get out there and start exploring on this stuff to figure out, you know, we don't need 100 or 1,000 use cases. We need tens of thousands of use cases um, to really create smart cities. So until we get out there and creating an environment that allows the different components of the ecosystem, from the funding and VCs and startups, um, to the enterprises, to the city and the government themselves, and the ICT community, we got to get them working together, and, and the citizens as well, to start developing these things and trialing them. Yeah. This is really interesting, isn't it? Because the whole approach to building a smart city is different. That I think the, the key here, Charles, is what you said is that they weren't giving extensive budgets. You know, because if you were allocated a lot of capital to the PMO, then it would, with that, whatever you would have said, their role would have by default become the you know, the enabler of the, of the whole smart city. They, everybody would look to them and said, well, you've got the budget, you make it happen. Whereas by, in, in a productive way, starving them of cash, they then had to sort of say, okay, right, well, somebody else has got to do this. We've just got to kind of facilitate now and pull all these elements together. That, that's quite different from, I mean, like you say, the money has to come from somewhere at the beginning, right? You know, all these, these city town planners or these city organizers, are effectively given a budget and then they go, okay, so how can I go out and spend this 
which is, you know, once you start getting into that kind of mindset, it, it looks good. I mean, they have all the sort of like the, the PR that goes with it and the marketing suites for the smart city and they have their smart city expos and all yeah. that. But at the end of the day, like you say, it's the IT infrastructure providers and the local startups that are going to make it happen, right? You know, you put it on the citizen yeah. level. That's where the real innovation happens. So let's sort of think, well, think about think about the smartphones. Like think about how the iPhone took off and Android. Okay, they gave us base devices, but the reason we're so addicted to these things is because there's millions of applications. Absolutely. They created a platform that allowed us to go out there and experiment. And to be honest, I'm sure there's going to be some fantastic solutions coming out of there. Um, but it's going to be developed by citizens or students mm-hmm. or hackathons. Um, and this is what you need. You need everybody developing for it. And the problem right now is because the governments have limited budgets, they're only in investing with sure things. So that's why they look at predictive maintenance and asset tracking. Mm-hmm. The things where it's really easy to quantify the ROI. And it means they're not going to go out and experiment. And the other problem we face is everybody still tries to sell these things. And um, it's very CapEx intensive to do an IoT project. Mm-hmm. And people are concerned about CapEx. Uh, we need to get things more as a service. And the reason it's important is because Everyone hears the numbers from analysts that the market's worth $1 trillion or something like that in 2020. These ridiculous forecasts that nobody really can justify. Mm. Um, but that makes all the ICT vendors go, well, wait a minute. I want to get this percentage of that total addressable market. So therefore, I can do five deals and that'll give me $100 million. Yeah. They don't realize that IoT deals don't come in large pockets like this. What they do is they start off as proof of concepts and they grow and it's the land and expand model. You might start off with something that's going to cost $50,000 and then be worth $10 million in a couple of years or $20 million, but it starts small. Now, if you force these people to actually invest in all the CapEx up front for a proof of concept, if it fails, they're out of money. Yeah. Um, so this is, this is the other problem that's really holding the market back right now. Yeah, and it's sort of restricting, it, restricting it to a small group of people as well. You know, when you, yeah. when you need like several million or even billions to be involved in smart cities, then that pretty much excludes every single app developer. Like you say, that the people who built the apps for the, the mobile phones and made that work, you know, all of them are cut out of the market, right? So, yeah. I mean, if you go back to Taipei as an example, you mentioned proof of concept. So I can't remember the numbers, 100 plus that you mentioned. That, yeah, about 130, I think, and that was as of January when I was there. Right. Is there anything actually that's interesting out there that you can actually see it being used at the moment? They did some cool autonomous bus stuff already. So if you know Taipei at all, where they have Taipei 101 um, mm-hmm. and Jinyi Road right in front of it, uh, they ran the trial last year um, with their autonomous bus. And the idea is to use it, um, I think it was between 2 and 5 in the morning when public transport doesn't run. Um, so they're experimenting with that. The other fascinating bits out of it is they've already had a great bike scheme for a while. This year, they're going to be launching a shared scooter scheme. And I don't mean the little scooters that you stand on. I'm talking about regular scooters and then a shared car scheme. Both of those are going to be all electric. And what I like about this is, I don't know if you know Gogoro. Um, Mm. They make the the Tesla of scooters out of Taipei. Mm. Um, They're beautiful devices. I I don't want a scooter, but if I had one, I'd want this. But they're expensive. So what they did is they went to Kimco, which is a Taiwanese manufacturer of um, scooters, um, and basically asked them, you know, can you make electric scooters for us and we'll let you run the scheme. So now Kimco is going to make those. They also put government policies in place that by, I don't know, is it maybe 2025 or 2030, you can no longer sell um, um, petrol-fueled scooters. Everything has to be electric. 
So they've actually taken care of their own industry by saying, all right, you're the fifth largest scooter manufacturer in the world. We're not going to let you make scooters that use petrol anymore, um, but we're going to do electric and we're going to give you your first customer because it's going to be us. I mean, it's a great concept to do those types of things. Yeah, yeah. When you Obviously, you're American, so you, know, you can yeah. speak with some kind of authority. When you look at the States or you know, we can even talk for Europe as well, uh, everybody's talking about smart cities. Do you think that could work there? Is there too much vested interest, you know, or do you need that kind of? I mean, do Asians do it slightly differently? I mean, how does it compare with the West? I, I think the challenge is more about someone just taking that kind of a risk. I think what you see in Taipei City is their mayor is quite happy to be disruptive. He's trying to change things, mm-hmm. and he makes some very hard judgment calls and says we're going to go down this path, and then they just go forward with it. Um, it's partially risky, but he's making a lot of progress, and the citizens can see that. Um, and if I remember correctly, I don't think he's one of the two major parties. I think he's sort of more of an independent, um, but he's been doing very well at doing it. People can do this. Um, they just choose not to. Um, a lot of them are more conservative. Um, I just think it's this is one example I've seen. I mean, I mean Singapore is doing a fantastic job. Mm. They've got the right setup, um, but I would like to see them move a little bit quicker down the citizen-centric path. Um, but maybe what they can do is, you know, see what's going on um, in Taipei and just copy a lot of it if it makes sense. Yeah. What, what's sort of required to make that happen? Because it's very tempting, isn't it? I mean, Singapore has a great track record in that very sort of top-down approach to planning infrastructure. And, and to some degree, infrastructure has to be centrally planned. You can't yeah. have it all sort of planned by everybody's got their own idea of how things are going to work. With, with Singapore as an example, obviously they're, they're, you know, they're facing all kinds of different challenges you know, in terms of overcrowding, aging populations and so on. So to some degree you may say, well, you know, they've been successful at planning the city, they've been successful at you know, moving the city from manufacturing to services now to innovative startups. You know, when you look at smart cities as well, you might say, well, they're very good at doing this. Why don't you just kind of like continue as we are? But, you know, what's sort of required to sort of build that grassroots out of smart cities, like you say, is kind of happening a bit more, you know, frequently in Taipei? I, the, the most important thing that was different is that their project management office went out and started engaging. And they've engaged something like 400 different ICT vendors. Right. Um, so they've gone out to the ICT vendors and said, come help us, let's try and build a smart city. Um, I, that's the only city that I've ever heard of doing that, um, where they proactively went out there and engaged the ICT community. And the vendors love it because they get it. I mean, they're, for these proof of concepts, the city isn't paying for them. The people have to cough up the money and donate their own equipment. To, um, but it allows them to test these concepts out to see if they work or not. And let's face it, if you're a startup, um, you can actually do a proof of concept there, and you've then done a proof of concept in Taipei. It's, mm-hmm. it's good for you, you know, your go-to-market uh, message as well. Um, so I think it's just about creating a more collaborative environment. The way that we're structured in almost every country that I can think of is governments on one side, the vendors are on the other side, and they don't really play nicely together, or at least as nicely as they should. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just think like it's just it's a really creating that collaborative environment and then making people realize that if we work together, we can create this. Right. If we stay in our silos, we'll make progress. It won't be anywhere near as quick and we won't see the benefits and the citizens won't see the benefits. And that's what should be important on this is because we've built up the hype. All the citizens are thinking, I've heard all this stuff about smart cities. My life has not improved. It hasn't impacted the way that I work, live and play. Um, so what has to change? 
uh, well, what's going to change that's going to you know, feel that way? So I think what we'll see is I think you'll see a lot more focus from the cities, especially the leading cities like Singapore and Taipei, focusing more on business outcomes to make it more tangible and getting away from just the smart city or smart nation concept. Mm. Um, and I think, I think that's the next logical path. I don't think everyone can just jump down this path of what Taipei has done. It's, it's a very difficult cultural change to make. But they could move away from saying smart cities to saying, all right, we're going to run a program to improve the quality of life of the elderly. Right. Or we're going to improve the quality of life of people who live in public housing. Or we want to drive energy efficiency across our government buildings. If you narrow it down to a business outcome, it basically gives the ICT community something that they can latch onto and start driving towards it. Yeah, I wonder when, when people talk about smart cities as well, does, does that sort of give you know, centrally planned authorities license to not have a focus because it is a very popular term, isn't it? And it seems to give people a sense of, you know, I suppose it seems to be for some authorities to be like the, the, the raison d'etre, if you like. Okay, so we're going to focus on smart cities, but you can easily spend a lot of money without delivering any kind of results, right? But like yeah. you're saying maybe what these cities should be doing is saying, rather than getting on the, the, the smart cities bandwagon, to be saying, okay, what, what are the kind of tangible improvements in people's lives that we want to create? And yeah. I, I guess that's, that's a challenge, isn't it? It's quite fashionable to get on, start talking about smart cities. But do you think they would buy it? Do you think that you could get out there and convince these cities to look at Taipei and say, hey, look, you know, you've got to start thinking in these terms? Trust me, I'm trying. I get on my soapbox about <laughs> this one all the time. And what I love about this is that this concept, all they've done is just decided to be helpful instead yeah, of being yeah. more of a blocker. Um, and it's just, it's really transformed the way that they've taken this to market. And what I really like about it is when they reached out to the ICT community, like I said, you've got startups, but you've got people like Cisco, IBM, Acer, donating equipment and platforms that people can use for this. Um, because they realize if we can identify the solutions, yeah. fine, they might lose money on this um, when they're doing it in Taipei. There is, let's see, how about 200 smart cities in China plus. Um, there's, you know, another 100 plus in India. There's a large market in Asia to go after. So this just becomes their place to go experiment. Um, and if they can identify something that works, they've got a lot of places they can take it to. Yeah, so I was wondering what sort of, you know, what was the 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 recipe for success to make Taipei a standout? You've already mentioned the mayor as a bit of a disruptor as well. That That's always kind of important. We see patterns of that around Asia, like, for example, like Fukuoka in Japan is trying to establish itself as the startup city, and that's really driven by the mayor of the city. Mm -hmm. You need that, but that's not always sustainable because, you know, mayors come and go. So yes. what is it about Taipei? Is it, is it like the size? Is it, you know, the fact that it has that, you know, electronics heritage, hardware heritage? I'm just wondering, you know, what, what are the sort of the input factors that make Taipei a success? I think it's a combination of factors. Uh, number one, like you did mention, that there's a lot of very good um, hardware manufacturers there. Um, also, you get a lot of I IoT vendors just in general coming out of there. Um, you know, companies like Advantech, um, and so in the more the platform space, there's a lot of people focusing on it. Plus, they have industries that they can go after with it, uh, you know, like manufacturing. So, it's a good market to do it in. Taipei also has excellent infrastructure um, as far as you know broadband speeds, everything else. Um, it's a good business environment. And you, what you end up having is a lot of 
MNCs have major um, offices there as well because what you get is a very highly skilled labor force um, and student base to choose from when you're looking for a new headcount um, and very good English skills as well as Mandarin, so it's a good crossover. Um, and a lot of companies like it because there's stronger IP protection uh, in Taiwan than you'll end up having in China. Mm. Um, so you end up having, you know, I mean, Intel's got a big center up there. AWS, I think, is putting in a new center there. So a lot of people are really putting a lot of investment there because it's great for R&D. Um, and it, not really, it's, it's, it creates a good test lab, basically, to create this yeah. government as a platform concept. That, that IP side is really important, isn't it, when you're, when you're testing out? products isn't it especially sort of very yep. cutting edge technology like this is i mean you look at for example now how china high speed rail really leads the world but you know that was technology which you pretty much got from the japanese right as an example yeah. right i mean that was technology i don't i wouldn't use the word stole because you know people borrow or they sort of learn from each other but it just goes to show doesn't it is that you know if you're, you're involved in sort of very high end technology that you know when you especially testing something and you haven't mm -hmm. got it into market and you haven't got the brand awareness out there which people say oh yeah it's that that gadget i know those guys right that you want to you want to do it in a place where you've got a bit of protection right rather than yes. sort of throwing it out there where you've got i mean for example i mean if you go to china and you're in any kind of bike sharing business for example you know you've got hundreds of competitors so anybody can take yeah. that and get it made half the price of what you're getting it made for next door yeah so that's a challenge fascinating i mean you know look taking a, a look into taipei as well and you know i know for example i mean i heard for example like taipei i, I had friends who were telling me about different things that were going on there in iot and there's for example smart I, I suppose it was under the smart cities umbrella but wasn't named as such where they were using drones to uh you know basically report back on traffic accidents which was just fascinating because, you know, they were basically using, I, I don't think it was just a, a test case scenario where, you know, if you had a traffic accident in Taipei, they'd fly a drone out and uh, obviously emergency services were there, but the drone could actually, you know, for insurance purposes, could get a, either they were going there first to go and assess the situation to see, you know, as a heads up for paramedics what was needed, but also to, you know, get a, if there was any kind of like criminal issues or for insurance and so on, they could actually take photos of the, the traffic accident as well. So that, that was pretty advanced, you know, I, I hadn't heard. They're also that. doing water quality monitoring by drone and 3D landscape modeling by drone as well in uh, Taipei. Well, so there you go. Do you think that, I mean, obviously you're involved in IoT and some of the, the cutting edge stuff and whether it be smart cities, for example, or, or going all the way to, you know, like we said, with like healthcare, medical services as well. And you, you take a look at Asia. How, how do we sort of compare benchmark with other places in the world? Is there a sort of comparison? Is it too hard to compare? Do you think that it's more advanced in some areas? I know, obviously, the, the hardware heritage is here. Things get manufactured mm -hmm. here. But, you know, in terms of actually the innovation and, and the application of that, you know, have things come uh, on in recent years? Yeah. I, when I look at Asia, like I'm always amazed that, especially when you look at the, the analysts and the market sizing, how much they say the U.S. is worth versus Asia Pacific. Um, I think it's way understated. I think Asia um, is by far the biggest market for this in the future. Um, it's growing. There's investment going in. There's uh, It's got a long tail. You have some of the most advanced markets in Korea um, and Japan and Singapore. Um, but then you have some of the ones that are least developed. 
But that means that the solutions there that you might sell to the top countries are not going to be sold for the next 20 years as the other countries catch up. Yeah. And just the sheer scale of it, if you look at the population of Asia, you know, what's that number? Is it four, four and a half billion people? Um, I, I just I find the market here fascinating. And I think the, the level of companies and startups um, and innovation coming out of China is just amazing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that a lot of the U.S. still thinks that, oh, all you know, what happens in China is they just copy whatever's done out of the U.S. or whatever. That's yeah. not the case anymore. On things like AI, you know, they keep saying that, oh, China's going to overtake on AI. I, I, I think they're there already. Um, I mean, I'm not the AI expert, but I mean, if they're not there right now, it will be pretty soon. Yeah. So I think that the growth we're seeing here, and like I said, there's just so many huge countries um, that it's just it's fascinating. Um, and it's just difficult to cover it because there's so many interesting things around the region. Yeah, I mean, you do a good job of covering it, I have to say, even though it's difficult. But I think, you know, you talk about the scale. I mean, that that's a major competitive advantage, isn't it? Is that a lot of the technologies we talked about today rely on large data sets. I mean, we're starting to see this with companies like Alibaba, for example, that now they have a massive competitive advantage because they have access to billions and billions of transactions or billions and billions of interactions, which, you know, if rightly or wrongly... You know, if Facebook starts collecting that kind of data, it kind of throws up all kind of problems, right? You know, so they have a real competitive advantage in Asia. And they're also, like you say, very advanced markets right next door to other markets, cheaper markets, bigger markets. So that has a real competitive advantage as well. I mean, you know, Shenzhen, I suppose, might be pricing itself out of the market a little bit. But, you know, next door, you can go to Guangzhou or Fuzhou or something where you can get stuff made for half the price, right? You can't do yeah. that in the US, right? You can't sort of just go to the next city and find a, you know, labor at half the price, can you? It just doesn't exist, those kind of differentiations, which is absolutely not, key. It's right? not even just the China examples, because China's still relatively expensive um, in comparison to what it was five, 10 years ago. But what's happening is that actually holds back a lot of the smart city and IoT advancement in Asia because we developed solutions initially for the developed countries. Mm. So for your Singapore, Fukuoka, Seoul, you develop them for there and at that price point. And then you go to somebody in Manila or in Bangalore and say, well, you should buy all of this. But they can't afford it because it's priced at U.S. price points. So what I would keep an eye on over the next 24 months is India. Because Tata is doing a global or a, a, a countrywide LoRa rollout that's going to cover 400 million people. All those solutions are going to have to have local hardware and services built behind them. And since you've got what five of the ten biggest SIs in the world sitting in India, mm. they're going to start making things at a very low price point. That means that they can take those solutions not just in India but to the rest of Asia. That's going to be the developing markets. They can take it to Africa. And this is what we need. We're developing our solutions right now for the developed world and at those price points. We need people to start making more low price point uh, products that can help drive the developing and emerging markets forward. Yeah, exciting times. That, yeah, We've just opened the lid on India as well. We didn't talk about them today, but I'm obviously we talked about Tata at the beginning. But like you say, you know, it has the, the, the mass, but also on top of that, you have that sort of digital and you know, into, into the systems integrators, all those guys. I mean, the amount of digital talent in India is just probably one of the, the, the biggest markets in the world, you know, in terms of people who can code software and so on. So once you open that up, it's going to be fascinating. Charles, been, agreed. Yeah, fascinating talking to you. Thanks for sharing your update with us. We didn't even talk about your last eight months, but I think we've got a flavor for it, what you've been focusing on and what's been sort of keeping you busy. 
and your travels as well. And you, you do quite a good job as, of sharing your insights and giving away for free on your, your website as well. So we'll put all the details in the show notes and your infographics as well. I mean, you, you go real deep. Feel free to share the infographics out. I put them out there for everybody. So. Yeah, that's um, great. Those are the go-to sources if you want to know about IoT and who sort of the brands are in IoT in Asia. That sort of, you know, Charles's information sort of shares everything. So go and check those out. We'll put all the details in the show notes. And please come back on and give us some more updates on your journey, your insights six or seven months down the road. We'd love to hear those and, you know, what the latest trends are, what's on your watch list on IoT in Asia. That's Charles Reed Anderson, everybody, from Charles Reed Associates. Charles, thanks so much for coming on the show today. All right, cheers. Thanks a lot for having me. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.